So how can a person be right with God? <clears throat> there is a text in Scripture which encapsulates the whole Christian salvation reality. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved. Grace meaning undeserved favor of God. For by grace you have been saved. And the tense there of the verb have been saved is what we call perfect tense which has and has lasting results. It's something that has happened and has lasting results. The same grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith in whom? Christ Jesus and what he did for us. His work on the cross of Calvary purchased our salvation for us. It is not of yourself so that no one can boast. It is, in case you didn't understand the word grace before, it is the gift of God. We are Christ's workmanship or literally masterpiece or tapestry. We look beautiful on the outside as what God is making of us, but when we turn ourselves around and look at all that's been done, there's lots of knots and lots of mess if you've ever looked at the back of a tapestry. And that's the story of our lives. Lots of mess that God turns into a masterpiece. We are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance for us to do. The great tragedy of our world is that it takes that truth and turns it totally upside down. And the vast majority of people in our world are taught by religious leaders of all different stripes of religion that it is by works that you gain favor with God or the gods. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion or non-religion. We believe the Bible teaches and we believe it is true that salvation is a gift from God. And we are made right with him by this great gift of Jesus Christ who purchased our salvation by dying for our sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so when we hand you out Maximum Impact Discipleship Pledge Cards, I personally never want you to think that by changing the measurements on your life that somehow you will gain favor with God. That's not what this is all about. This is about God's people saved by the gift of Jesus Christ prompted by the Spirit of God to do the good works that we were called to do and have Him shape our lives by moving us forward step by step to be more like the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. 
In today's encounter in, in the scriptures, we encounter Jesus, who stay, who's still at the temple, putting the final touches on condemning the religion of the day. He still is condemning the religions of our world. And so we'll have him at the temple making his final statements of why Almighty God is putting the temple out of business. Our Father and our God, as we take time to look into your word this morning, I pray that you would clarify in our hearts. We've had a, a wonderful time together already of praising you and lifting up your name Uh, of celebrating your work of salvation in the lives of two precious people and seeing what you're doing in in our lives, Lord. We're thankful for that. Coming together, fellowshipping together uh, in prayer, in song, encouraging each other, uh, lifting up, praising our God, singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is our awesome, holy, perfect God who loves us. And his love goes on and on and on. Oh, Lord, it's been wonderful already. And we just thank you that you are meeting with us. And now you are going to move in our hearts through your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit of God would bring uh, 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 a uh, attention, gain our attention, oh, Lord, around your word that our hearts might understand the critical difference between seeking to earn God's favor and receiving the gift of God's favor. Life and death, eternity, hangs on the balance of getting that right. So, Father, we don't wonder about the importance or the urgency of your lesson to us today. We already know. And I just pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive what so many in our world refuse to listen to. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. We're looking at Mark chapter 12. We're finishing off the chapter of 12. This continues to be a day in Jesus' final week here on earth. A day that he's been spending at the temple. And we find out in this particular text that 2,000 years ago, the same things were happening as concurrently happen. And the things that were happening 2,000 years ago have been happening for thousands of years before that. And that is that people are, treat God or the gods like they are a charity. Somehow God is pleased if you give some voluntary attention to Him. Or seasonal bribes, Christmas and Easter, religion is treated often like a media bundle. Make your selection from a menu of options. I like this, I don't like that, this works for me, that I don't think will work for me. That's because we live in a culture where truth is now a commodity. It's not the truth, it's my truth. It's your truth. If truth needs a modifier, then I'm not sure I believe it. I wonder how soon our courts are going to start to say stuff like, do you swear to tell your truth? The whole of your truth and nothing but your truth? 
How confident would you feel about a witness who promised that? So help you, you? That's the direction we're heading in. Picked up a few quotes by people who are supporting or um, endorsing the whole concept of truth being unique to an individual who say stuff like, making my perspective, my preference, the allowable wiggle room for what is true. When defining their, themselves, they say, I'm, in other words, I'm making my perspective and my preferences the allowable wiggle room for what is true. Others are saying stuff like, personal truth should ha- shouldn't have to be verified. It's mine. So that's postmodern or post-truth, the post-truth era that we live in. But it's not really so modern or postmodern, in fact. It's characteristic of the whole of humanity, the whole of human time. Satan himself being the father of lies inaugurated the idea of your truth in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? In other words, you have the option of choosing your truth. Go ahead. And we we know how that turned out. We know how that has turned out. But beloved, life depends on truth. It, It does in the physical world, in the practical world, and it certainly does in the spiritual world. When you go to the pharmacy and grab a a bottle of pills, you are counting on the pharmacist being truthful to you. Likewise, in the spiritual realm, we are counting on some place that we can go to determine that, yes, this is truth. So we choose to go to God. And we choose to believe that this is God's word that we have in the scriptures. And Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the truth for all time and the life. That's what we choose to believe. And it matters. Because what do you bring to God for your salvation? When it comes to salvation, it's fatal to be wrong. There are no do-overs. When it comes to the end, you either chose the truth and spend eternity with God, or you choose to select from the menu of options of your truth and my truth and relative truth and perish. That's what Jesus encountered here. Jesus is involved in a final public showdown of religious leaders that stand in for multiple religious leaders throughout our world, throughout history. They're called teachers of the law. And it becomes not just the final public showdown but before his crucifixion, but the final public shutdown of their credibility as spokesmen for God. And there are common characteristics of false teachers everywhere. And in this section of Scripture, Jesus outlines for us three 
aspects or three different characteristics of false teaching. If you have your Bibles open, I want to look at Mark chapter 12, and they're verses 35 to 44. Mark 12, 35 to 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law, now these are the religious leaders, all right? We'll look a little bit more at these, are called scribes. We'll look at this a little bit more in depth, but how is it that the teachers of the law, these were the main teachers of the Jews, say that Christ, or literally Messiah, the anointed one, is the son of David, when David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him, in other words, Messiah, Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. This was a fresh, exciting teacher. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out for your teachers, in other words. He's got the congregation sitting in front of him, and he says to them, watch out for these guys who've been teaching you. That'd be an awful thing for Jesus to come into a church and do that. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. In fact, one-sixteenth of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is the word of God. So Jesus brings the spotlight into the malpractice or onto the malpractice of the religious leaders of the time and demonstrated their illegitimacy to be of God's word. The first... Um, evidence or first characteristic of false teaching is that the gross misconduct with respect to the handling of scriptures. The gross misconduct with respect to the handling of scriptures. By the way, the more that you reject the voice of truth, the less you will recognize it and able to hear it when it comes beckoning you. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 writes concerning this matter of our attention to God. And in Romans chapter 1, he points out that 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, all you have to do is go outside and look around. In fact, all you have to do is sit in here and look around at God's creation. And you can see God. And it says there that for although, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. He breaks into a praise now. Amen. Now, Paul points out something very, very critical to us here in terms of the recognition of who God is. In um, an article written by Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield, she quotes from the profiting of God, from God's Word, a book written by A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink. And he writes this, the Word of God, when read in the wrong way, or for the wrong reasons, issues no spiritual profit, but instead provides a curse rather than a blessing. The teachers of the law knew full well this psalm that Jesus was, was reporting to them. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. This particular psalm was known and recognized in that day by the teachers of the law, by the religious leaders of the Jews, that this psalm was a messianic psalm. What we mean by a messianic psalm is that, that uh, so certain of the psalms in the, the whole 150 were particularly prophetic with respect to the description of Messiah. And Jesus says here in the text in verse 36 that David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, David himself wrote Psalm 110, but he, didn't, he wrote more than he knew. The Holy Spirit, we, we've, we've learned this as what we call inspiration. The scriptures are the inspired word of God because God moved in the hearts of individuals, in the hearts and minds of individuals to write down the very words of God. And, and so Jesus is saying here, you teachers of the law, you know that Psalm 110, verse 1, or the whole psalm is a messianic psalm. You know that it's in reference to the character and nature of Messiah, prophetically given. And you also know that the pro prophetic texts have taught us everywhere that the Messiah is to come from the line of David. He's to be a descendant of David. And so he says here, why is it then that David writes a psalm with respect to Messiah, and we all know that Messiah is going to be on, in his lineage or be his son, and he calls him his Lord. And the reason that Jesus says this to them is because they are denying the divinity of Messiah. They're, they're denying the divinity of Jesus as Messiah. And uh, should they have known? Well, I'm glad you ask. In John chapter 10, for instance, 
Uh, Jesus has made it abundantly clear to those who are listening, to his disciples who were around him, and to regularly the teachers of religion who were following him around, who were eavesdropping all the time, he made it abundantly clear who he was. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, 28, a, a passage that's near and dear to all of our hearts with respect to salvation, Jesus, Jesus states this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now who but God can give eternal life? Jesus is declaring that he can give eternal life. And so as he says this, he understands what he needs to say next. Watch what he says. Listen to what he says. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. My Father who has given them to me, my Father in heaven who has given me, them to me, God, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus is declaring that his hand and the Father's hand are the same hand. And then if they didn't get it, he says this, I and the Father are one. Over in the same discussion, in the same text in John 10, Jesus says this, why then, or what about the one whom the Father set apart? In other words, he's talking about himself. What about me, whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? The religious leaders of the day were about to haul Jesus in front of the courts and accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy because he was declaring himself to be divine. And he looks at them and he says to them, the teachers of religion, you know full well that the promised Messiah is to be divine. You know Psalm 110. You know full well that Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of David. I am a descendant of David. And I am God's son. And the congregation was delighted. But the teachers of the law were about to lose their jobs. The teachers of religion were about to lose their jobs. False teachers not only treat the scriptures subjectively and customize the meaning, but quite frankly, are unable to make deep dives into the rich heart of theological truth because they refuse to believe what it says. The Holy Spirit speaking through David, David writing more than he knew, pegs Messiah as a greater king. The Lord, God, says to my Lord, listen, what father, what human father ever calls his son Lord? Anybody in here a father has called their children Lord? Called their son Lord? In this psalm, the Lord God said to David, saying, to my Lord. 
my descendant is my Lord. Remember when the angels appeared in the sky at the birth announcement of Jesus? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He is Messiah the Lord. Jesus is as promised and described. He sets, out, sets the record straight before he is going to be accused of blasphemy. And we'll go to the cross. But when you encounter people like this, when you encounter religious teachers like this who refuse to handle the scriptures properly, you find that they are filled with hypocrisy. The second characteristic of false teachers is hypocrisy. The fruit of religion, by the way, that's based on righteousness by good works. Whenever you selectively reject God's word, it always moves to false worship. And false worship always moves to pretend faith. And pretend faith always moves to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness always moves to external play-acting, which is what hypocrisy is. You become an actor. If you don't have the real thing, your only choice is to act. Your only choice is to be an actor, to be a play actor, to be a hypocrite. And so it is with these particular teachers of the law. Now, I'm not going to assume that you understand necessarily what I'm talking about in terms of works-based righteousness. So let me explain it. Or justification by works. It is the idea that you can be right with God by offering God something from yourself. The idea that you somehow pay God something or give God something, hey, will be pleased. It's treating the Creator as if He is part of creation. Because we, in our human natural way, we, we, we uh, have already figured out how to earn favor from creatures. For instance, how do you earn favor from your dog? How do you get your dog to like you? You give him or her doggy treats, right? Doggy treats earn you the favor of your dog. And so, you're, and so you treat, uh, that's how you treat creatures to earn their favor. And, and there's a world full of people in religions that think that God is just like a dog. If we give him some treats, he'll be pleased with us. If, if we're having a particularly hard week that we know is coming, then perhaps if we piece God off, perhaps if we give him some sort of treat, we pay him something or we come to church or something like that, we'll get some sort of blessing or good luck from God. That's what these teachers of the law were doing and we're teaching the people that God is like a creature. You just have to pay him off. So the issue of works-based salvation or works-based righteousness or gaining the favor of God is this. You pay. The entire difference between works-based righteousness or works-based religion that is blanketing the whole world and Christianity is that Christ paid 
The, the complete difference between everything else you see and the truth of what you find in what Jesus teaches is he pays. He paid for you. He went to the cross of Calvary to pay for your sins so that you could have salvation free. It's a gift of God to those who by faith will believe that Jesus is the one who came for them and died for them and took their sins at, on the cross at Calvary and now offers to them salvation free of charge. In the other systems of religion, in this throw God, throw God or the gods a treat, you never can ever know if you've treated God enough. How do you know? How do you know when the end comes, if you are relying on doggy treats to God, how can you ever know at the end of time that you will have given him enough treats for him to be pleased with you? And I can assure you that all of the other religions of the world, all of those people who have some sort of humanist religion, even the largest Christian denomination are never certain that they are right with God. Christianity, because it is a gift of God, by God's grace, is secure. Amen. You know that your future is secure. You know that your eternity is secure because it is a gift of God that's given to you. And as Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand once the Father gives you to me. Amen. Now, these teachers of the law, we call scribes, not all of them, by the way, were, or, or not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes were Pharisees. And, and they were basically the seminary profs to the priests. They were the lawyers of the day. Seminary theologians, they turned the grace of God into a series of legalistic systems to socially engineer the people by behavioral modification. They were a dominant force in Judaism. They handled all of the legal matters, property rights, estates, contracts. That's what they did. They were revered, and they were called rabbis. Rabbi means my great one. Now, you can just call me Rick but they like to be called rabbis. In fact, they love to be greeted. Can you imagine going down to the Oshawa Center and I'm, I'm saying to you now, I want you all to call me rabbi when you meet me down at the Oshawa Center. And as they pass by, oh, my great one. Thank you, my child. <laughs> Have a blessing, my child. It says here, Jesus says, they loved to be greeted in the marketplace. Because they love their titles. They love their external stuff. It says they have flowing robes. Jesus said they, they love to walk around with their flowing robes. Hey, look at us. We have flowing robes. We're noble. We're important. We don't work because you can't work wearing a woman's dress. And, and look at us. And they couldn't move quickly. All right, women can work. Okay. Don't, don't, send, me, don't send me hate mail. They couldn't work like a man. That was the point. 
They wanted to be important. They loved the important seats in the synagogue. They loved to sit at the front facing the congregation. Hey, look at us. We're here at church. Aren't we important? Aren't we pious? Isn't God pleased with us? And they loved special seats at banquets. There was a special seating arrangement, you know. When, a, when some rich guy was throwing a banquet or some rich woman was throwing a banquet, there were special seating arrangements for the scribes. And the most important place to sit was, you guessed it, at the right hand of the host. And then the next in pecking order had, had to sit at the left side. And then it had to stagger back and forth and it had to be perfectly right. They loved that, Jesus said. And they love to make lengthy prayers. Oh, how they go on and on and on making prayers. Their prayers are more for the sake of men and women to hear them than for God to hear them. Because God says, you don't have to, Jesus says, you don't have to, pre, you don't have to pray like the pagans pray, babbling over and over again, saying the same things. Your heavenly Father knows what you, what you need. Speak to him with sincerity. And worst of all, it says, he says, they devour widows' houses. It, it kind of doesn't get lower than to take advantage of a widow. And Jesus looks at them and says, these are your teachers? This is the religion you're following? You're going to listen to them when they shout that I'm a blasphemer? You see, um, teachers of the law were not allowed to sell their teaching. But what they could do is tell people, hey, if you support me, you'll get a special blessing from God. And since they were the lawyers and estate handlers, property rights handlers, once a woman lost her husband and his estate was left to her, his property was left to her, these sharks moved in to take advantage of her. And that sets us up for this final scene of Jesus in the temple with a widow, a poor widow, who comes into the temple and gives away her last two coins, all that she had to live on, because she is Jesus' case in point. The, the final evidence of false teacher is the emotional, physical, and financial abuse of the most vulnerable of society. Now, I know that this text has been taught as a stewardship text for years and years, and I've taught it myself that way, but in wrestling and struggling with this text this week, I no longer think this is a stewardship text. 
I think it swings on verse 40. They devour widows' houses. And Jesus calls all of his disciples over to him and says, guys, sit down and look at this. I want you to see the end fruit of false teaching. This poor widow, and by the way, you really didn't have to put the uh, descriptor in front of widow as poor widow. It's very unusual to do that because widows regularly were poor. Jesus is emphasizing she's now a poor widow. In fact, she has two leptons left to her life. One-eighth of a cent. All that she has to live on. And under the oppressive teaching of these works-based teachers. They have taken everything out of her and she's now down to her final last two cents and she's putting them in the offering plate and she's going to go away and die. Guys, that's the end result of false teaching. Now, I don't know in, in terms of stewardship, if we were to take this as a stewardship text, the application would be to tell all of you, guess how you earn a blessing from God? Take all of your money, all that you have left, and throw it in the offering plate. And Jesus is going to bless you. But we never say that. Even when we take it as a stewardship text, we say, well, really what it means is generosity. That's not what this is. This isn't generosity. This is putting every last cent you have. Would it make any difference if these rich people who are following the teachers of the law and trying to earn God's favor took all of their money and put it in the offering? I mean, they put big bags of money. They're giving, Jesus says, out of their wealth. Would it, would it make a difference if they put all of their money in, if they were trusting on gaining God's favor with their money? Would it make any difference? Would it? Do you not know? It would make no difference. And I don't know her heart. I don't know this widow's heart. If she put those two thin coins in based on her faith in God and not faith in her offering, then she's good to go. I don't know her heart. That's not the point. The point here is about spiritual bankruptcy and where false teaching leads and where trusting in works righteousness leads. I have sat on numerous numerous occasions in the poorest of poor places in the world. If there's a poorer place, I don't know of it. I, I've sat outside of Mother Teresa's hospital in the central core of Calcutta, India. Right beside Mother Teresa's hospital, which by the way is doing a wonderful service, but right beside Mother Teresa's hospital is a Hindu temple. And across the street from Mother Teresa's, on every, any given day, the streets are full of temple prostitutes. And I've sat there watching poor widows sit in the street begging for their last couple of pennies that they might go into this Hindu temple and offer them 
to buy favor with the 3,000 gods of the Hindu religion. At the same time as those leaders tell the men of their community, as long as you get some dust from the prostitute's home and deliver it, your act with the prostitute is sacred. In other words, if your wife complains about you going to the prostitute, as long as you picked up some dust in her house and brought it to the temple, all's good. Now, this is the same religion, just with another face, that Jesus sits in the temple condemning. And the reason that he says two verses later in chapter 13, oh, as the disciples looked at the temple and the magnificent buildings, it's the same temple that Jesus says, this temple is going to be a pile of stones because I'm putting it out of business because it's leading people astray. Beloved, that's why our hearts are on fire for those masses in our world who are putting all of their hopes on buying the favor of God with their good works instead of trusting in Jesus Christ who alone can bring salvation so rich and so free. It's not about her generosity, although we don't really know her heart. But I have to conclude that whether out of wealth or out of want, you cannot buy, the fa cannot buy favor with God. You cannot. In fact, you may use your last two cents to buy, your, buy nothing but your death. This is the fruit of bad teaching and religious abuse. And the daytime TV is still filled with religious charlatans. And it should not surprise us that they occupy daytime TV. Because who's home to watch daytime TV? Widows. Promising great financial return to the vulnerable and to the needy in exchange for sowing a seed of financial faith into their luxury account. These are the people, Jesus says, will be punished most severely. Jesus had finished telling them a parable that the tenants were ripping off the landowner and they needed to be evicted. These are the ones who are producing no fruit. These are the ones who are threatening to kill the owner's son. These are the one who are, ones who are fleecing the vulnerable. The message of Christ is a message of rescue from the masses who are being abused by false religious teaching all around us. Father, I pray this morning and thank you for your amazing grace to us through Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for each soul that is here. 
this morning. I pray, O oh God, not knowing the backgrounds of the people who are here, I pray that if there's anyone who has been relying on giving treats to you and hoping to gain your favor, that today, in the hearing of your word, the teaching of Christ, that they will respond to the free gift of salvation offered by those who in faith would trust that Jesus has died for their sins, that they might be forgiven. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, you cannot buy your salvation. You cannot buy God. God has bought us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you try to save your life yourself, you will surely lose it. You mean I don't have to clean up my mess to come to Jesus? No. You're like that tapestry, all the knots and mess. And when you come to Jesus, he covers you with his blood so that you look 100% perfect to the Father in heaven. And then he goes about transforming your life because we can't do it ourselves. He does it through his power. That's the message that Christ came to bring. That's the message that we bring. If today you find yourself here and your life is a mess, then Jesus invites you to simply give him your life and he will give you his salvation. And then he will go to work on your life and the good works will come later. We were saved to do good works. We aren't saved by our good works. Friends, don't leave here without having a relationship with Christ that saves you forever. You don't get a do-over at the end. It matters what you do with Christ right now. Our Father and our God, I thank you for your love for us and your great mercy and grace. Lord, if there's any here this morning who you are speaking to their hearts, would you cause them to come and speak to one of our pastors, one of our church leaders, one of our wives, that today might be the day of salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be right here at the front. You come and speak to us. Have a good day.